This episode is about Andrew Tobias. He is relevant because although he is known for being a successful investor and, and a financial journalist, he has written an entire book on the insurance industry. We'll learn more about that soon, but for now I'm going to read the About the Author section from one of his out-of-print books so that you can get a proper introduction. Uh, quote, a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Business School, Andrew Tobias is the author of such books as The Only Investment Guide You'll Ever Need, Money Angles, The Invisible Bankers, The Only Other Investment Guide You'll Ever Need, and, and others. His software, Managing Your Money, has been an industry leader for nearly a decade. His column, Money Angles, has been running since 1989 in Time Magazine, uh, end quote. For this show, I'll be commenting on all of the books that I mentioned. Although some of these books are over 40 years old, we can still learn a lot from them. Um, fun fact, the first edition of the book I'm using was actually published uh, by Playboy Press, the same company that published the magazine. Andrew Tobias' first book, which is this one, was published in 1971. That book was different from his later books, um, not simply because it was published by Playboy. His earliest book is not per pertinent here because there isn't, to my knowledge, anything about insurance in it. His most popular book would come out in 1978 when Tobias was barely 30 years old. The title was just mentioned. It was called The Only Investment Guide You'll Ever Need. The very first edition of the book briefly discusses life insurance. On page 22, he wrote, quote, Insurance salesmen are very eager to sell whole life policies because their commissions on these are so much higher than on term policies. And that in turn is because the insurance company profits are higher. You would be wiser to buy uh, decreasing renewable term insurance and do your savings separately. End quote. The uh, first Bantam Mass Market Paperback Edition reprints the paragraph, but it adds with emphasis, don't buy, after mentioning whole life insurance. The following may not be in the hardcover edition, but I'm not sure. Uh, quote, it's, it's true that cashing in a whole life insurance policy prematurely for its surrender value is not something one does casually. After all, in the early years of the policy, much of your premiums are going to pay off sales commissions and company overhead. Your surrender, your surrender value will be disappointingly small. But things have changed dramatically for insurance companies and in turn for insurance buyers because of inflation. The inflation of the last several years has greatly increased the rate of return insurance companies earn on their investments. End quote. Um, we'll, we'll go into inflation and its effect on permanent life later when we discuss his treatise on insurance, The Invisible Bankers. Before moving on, I'll note that Tobias's most popular book has been revised and updated several times. Um, in a fairly recent edition from 2016, he wrote, the problems with whole life, many policies pay low interest, um, it is impossible for a non-expert to, 
tell a good policy from a bad one. Uh, there is tremendous. There is a tremendous penalty for dropping the policy, as many people do after just a few years. Unless most young families can't afford the protection they need if they buy whole life. He goes on with some more criticism, but I'm mentioning these remarks now because we'll see a similar list in another book. I think that the differences between the two versions are interesting, but for the most part, I'll be going through his writings in chronological order. The next book we'll focus on is The Invisible Bankers. The subtitle for this book is Everything the Insurance Industry Never Wanted You to Know. You can tell from the title that this book is going to be very important to anyone who is trying to learn about life insurance. Tobias does not disappoint with this book. He does an excellent job when it comes to giving us the untold uh, history of life insurance. I've mentioned elsewhere the book The Mortality Merchants, which is not by Tobias. Um, like, like that book, um, Tobias features... Eliza Wright, the first insurance commissioner of Massachusetts. Um, for those who didn't hear the first episode, forfeiture is a term that means that the policyholder gets nothing if he misses a premium payment. The policy just lapses and the, uh, the policyholder will wish that he had bought term life insurance instead. Given that backstory, Let's now discover why this forfeiture provision had to end. According to Tobias, until Eliza Wright waged his successful campaign for reform, non-payment of a whole life premium meant not just that the protection element of the policy would lapse, but that the savings element to which one had contributed by his early year overpayments would be lost as well. Wright's zeal had been kindled on a visit to London's Royal Exchange in 1844, where he saw life insurance policies on very old men being sold to speculators, apparently of Hebrew persuasion, who would profit by taking over the premium payments the old men could no longer afford to keep up, waiting for the day of decease to collect the face value of the policy. This was done, Wright was told, because the companies made it a rule never to buy their own policies. Never, that is, to pay out any cash upon surrender or lapse of a whole life policy, no matter how long it had been kept in force. A poor rule, it seemed to me. I had seen slave auctions at home. I could hardly see more justice in this British practice. I, and, and, and that's Eliza Wright, that is, resolved... If I ever return to America, it should be otherwise here, if my voice could avail. Avail it did. It became a requirement that cash values payable upon surrender of a policy be written into whole life contracts. That way, if an old man can no longer keep up his premiums, he could in effect sell back his policy to the company for a partial refund, its surrender value. The irony here is that people in the 
21st century, as mentioned in the first episode, are now reverting to selling their whole life policies to speculators because the cash surrender value isn't growing fast enough. I'm, I'm afraid that I'm seeing a, a contradiction between my sources. Uh, since Tobias suggests that cash surrender value was imposed on insurance companies by a regulator or some official, the mortality merchants left me with the impression that the industry finally gave in voluntarily. It seems like it would, it would be in their enlightened self-interest to pay cash surrender value. It's an, in, it's an interesting question, but let's uh, assume that regulators forced the industry to pay cash surrender value. The unintended consequence is that policyholders compare the cash surrender value to what they could get on some other investment. They then complain about the relatively uh, low rate of return. What they may not know is that cash surrender value is a floor. The policyholder could have gotten money for his policy even before the existence of cash surrender value. As mentioned um, in the pilot episode, people will find it offensive. Offensive that the beneficiary slash speculator is hoping that the insurer will die sooner rather than later. R regardless, once the speculators started buying the policies, the industry should have figured out that they would be better off paying the cash surrender value. Think about it. Would you rather pay the surrender value or the face value? Obviously, the face value is going to be more. It's worth noting that Tobias knew about this history. As we just acknowledged, Tobias criticized whole life because it paid low interest. Once the insured is old, the interest doesn't matter much. As Tobias revealed, old people who have been paying premiums will not lose all those premium dollars. Even, even in the 1800s, someone was eager to buy the policy. Reformers like Eliza Wright, of course, found it to be unsavory, but if there's no cash surrender value, then the speculators are actually being guided by the so-called invisible hand to do some good for society. If you are old, you can still take the cash surrender value. Don't, don't however, complain that it's too low or that it's low. You, you have options. It's clear from reading Tobias's book that you always had options. We see now that there is some truth to the old sales pitch about term insurance being insurance that was rented and not owned. When you have permanent, insur permanent insurance, it's a long-term commitment but it can be a profitable asset in the very long run. Um, one thing that's true about insurance in general is that insurance contracts are aleatory contracts. As the old textbook explains, if the event insured against occurs, the insurer will probably pay the insured a sum of money much larger than the premium. By age 65, Assuming you've been paying premiums for a couple of decades, the cash value should be greater than the sum of the premiums. The face amount will be even larger. Whoever the beneficiary is will get 
a lot of money if the insurer dies. Cash surrender value doesn't change the fact that insurance contracts are aleatory. That aspect creates the profit opportunity. The policyholder can make a profit too if he's old. But as far as I know, he won't be able to profit if he buys term life insurance. The next book we'll explore is 1984's Money Angles. Um, the book is not as cohesive as the other ones I've mentioned. It's, it's more of a compilation. The material uh, was originally printed in places like Playboy, Parade, Esquire, and even TV Guide. I'm not. I'm not saying that uh, that Tobias was some kind of celebrity, but he had a major impact if he was published in Parade. There's not much on life insurance in the book, but the brief mention is worth quoting. According to Tobias, just as the peasant could fool the king, so are we peasants fooled now and again. For decades, for example, uh, one of the most basic deceptions in the sale of life insurance has been what is called the net cost comparison. Without sitting you down at the kitchen table and walking you through the whole thing, suffice it to say that the whole life uh, insurance, that, that whole life insurance, seemingly expensive, could be shown by the insurance professionals to cost nothing. For after 20 or 30 years, your accumulated cash value and dividends could exceed all the premiums you had paid in. The only thing this comparison ignores is the time value of money. The fact that all those premiums, had they been, had they been accruing interest on your behalf, might have been worth far more than the amount with which the, the life insurance company was willing to credit you. Um, it's true that some investment can be worth a lot more than the cash value, but if it's worth less than the face amount, then you're not self-insured, as they say. It's something, it's something to think about. We'll, we'll revisit that uh, controversy later. Uh, for now, I'll concede that Tobias is, of course, correct. Everything has an opportunity cost. You, you could prove that having a savings account costs nothing. After all, you get your money back if you want to withdraw it. People, however, don't keep all of their money in a savings account because they can probably get a better return by diversifying or just putting some money into an exchange-traded uh, exchange fund. As we've already seen, Tobias is biased against uh, whole life. So he uh, insinuates that the insurance company is getting most of the benefit from the contract with the policyholder. It sounds like a scam, but the insurance company has to actually know how to invest the funds. Um, when I first went to work at a hotel, I was curious to know who owned the building. I was told that it was owned by an, an insurance company. The policyholder only gets a modest rate of return, but at least it's contractually guaranteed. The insurance company has to worry about the tenants and other stuff. Uh, what would the insured have to do to put his money to work for himself? Tobias, as mentioned, went to prestigious schools and is very smart. I have no doubt that he knew how to put his money to work 
But if someone doesn't know how to get an 8% return on, on investment, maybe he is better off letting someone competent invest the money for him. Whoever manages the funds is going to want to cut. I don't feel like I'm playing devil's advocate just because I acknowledge something so obvious. Tobias was, of course, correct about the deficiencies of net cost comparisons. According to Consumer Reports, devised almost two decades ago, the interest-adjusted net cost index is a major improvement on the old net cost method of measuring a, a whole life uh, policy's cost over a period of years. Under the old method, you simply added up all the premiums paid, subtracted the cash value and the dividends, and considered the result, the actual cost of the policy. Using this, calculations, uh, using this calculation, two policies might seem to have the same cost when in fact the interest, it, when in fact that if the interest is, is considered, as in the interest adjusted net cost index, um, one is much better, uh, one is a much better buy than the other. Consumer Reports added, the, uh, the interest adjusted net cost indexes are the best measures of a policy's true cost. If the agent refuses, if the agent refuses to provide it, go elsewhere. I I'm not going to go into detail about the interest adjusted net cost index. Instead, I'm going to use an old example from a book published by Texas Instruments, the calculator company. Um, it demonstrates the opportunity cost concept pretty well. In fact, if you listen to the pilot episode, the following the following will be familiar. Uh, as mentioned elsewhere, buy term and invested difference proponents use relatively high co compound rates to try to prove that you can make more money with a monthly investment plan. Now, if you had a compound interest rate that was truly fixed, your investment could grow substantially. People may be surprised to know that approximately 30 years ago, people uh, gener generally expected inflation to be in the 4 to 6% range. Um, a mainstream book from 1992 says, most economists feel that inflation will remain low over the next 20 or so years, averaging somewhere in the 4 to 6% range. Low? We have, we have officially around 4% inflation today, and people are fussing about that level. Uh, re regardless, if inflation is going to be 4%, then you need to earn more than that just to preserve your wealth. It's not surprising then that old books talk about getting a guaranteed interest rate of 6%. We'll see that the nominal figure can grow by a decent amount when the investment is compounding at that rate. A business calculator can apparently churn uh, out the accurate figure, but if you heard the pilot episode, then you are aware of geometric uh, progressions. The formula will give you the same total. At the risk of being redundant, I'll reproduce the commentary as well as the example. Keep in mind that these prices are from the 1970s and not adjusted for inflation. Most term life insurance policies offer you coverage at a relatively low premium rate, but they do not build any cash value. 
Whole life insurance policies, on the other hand, usually have a certain cash value at the end of a specified period, but their premiums are generally higher. You have decided that you need $20,000 of life insurance coverage. You can get that coverage with term insurance for a $4.20 premium payment each month. An insurance salesman offers you a whole life policy, which will have a cash value of $5,000 after 25 years. But the monthly premiums for this policy are $18. Which policy should you buy? One way to decide is to calculate the difference in monthly premiums, 18 uh, minus $4.20 equals uh, $13.80. Um, you know that you can earn 6% annual interest compounded monthly if you deposit this amount in a savings account at the first of each month. At the end of 25 years, will this monthly saving be uh, worth more or less than the $5,000 cash value of the second policy? At 6% uh, annual interest, the investment grows to over $9,611, which is, of course, more than the $5,000 cash value. Um, here's the catch. As the book explains, the solution assumes that the price of term insurance and the interest rate remain the same and that you deposit the premium difference in a savings account faithfully each month. Like Tobias and Consumer Reports, Texas Instruments is taking foregone interest into consideration. Even critics of permanent life insurance usually admit that people may not actually save the difference. We'll see that Tobias has to say. We'll see what Tobias has to say about that later. Consumer Reports conceded. You could also think of whole life as a form of forced savings, especially if you have difficulty saving money systematically. However, the savings uh, accumulate. The savings accumulation in the early years of a whole life policy is likely to be minimal. Our ratings also show that most whole life policies are very poor investments if you plan to hold them for only a short time. Does anyone actually plan as an intend as an intend to let their whole life policy lapse? And, and by lapse, I mean no surrender value. Um, I doubt it. People may believe that they have self-control, but then they learn that they can't be frugal. Uh, if we assume frugality, then permanent life insurance, we are told, is a bad deal. Maybe it's just uh, superfluous. If we assume profligacy, then as we'll see, permanent life insurance is also a bad deal. Uh, the, 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 the potentially frugal as opposed to the naturally frugal, we'll be able to profit from permanent life insurance. Um, shortly, we'll see that Tobias admitted that permanent life insurance was a form of, quote, forced savings. The next book we'll look at is The Only Other Investment Guide You'll Ever Need. Here's where Tobias said unambiguously to buy term and invest the difference. Term insurance is plain vanilla insurance. 
It builds no cash value. It's not an investment, but it has three advantages. First, you don't need to be an expert to shop for it. Policies are relatively easy to understand and compare. Second, it's cheap. The only way, mo uh, the only way many families can afford the coverage they need. Third, you're not locked into it. There's no penalty if you should ever want to drop the policy or switch to a better one. The disadvantage is that it becomes very expensive as you grow older when you really might die. Investment-oriented investment life insurance products like Whole Life force you to save. The problem is 20% or 25% of the people who commit to these expensive plans with good intentions let them lapse after just a year or two and lose much of the excess they paid in. Investment-oriented life insurance products are not necessarily bad deals. But if life insurance is what you're after, you needn't, you needn't multiply the cost and complicate five fo complication fivefold by committing to a lifelong savings plan. Buy term and invest the difference. End quote. Uh, during the time that I've been working on this, on this episode, archive.org has apparently had to stop people from sharing the only investment guide for free. I am disappointed because I wanted to see how much of the uh, spinoff book made it into the more well-known book. The, the edition that came out shortly after the spinoff book is titled um, Still the Only Investment Guide You'll Ever Need. I wish I had been able to browse that one before it got copyright blocked. The, the good news is you can still read the spinoff book for free on archive.org. Um, here you can read the following, which will sound familiar. Term insurance is just insurance. Uh, what insurance would really like to sell you are investments. That, oh yes, incidentally, offer some life insurance. Whole life, universal life, variable life, single premium deferred annuities, and single premium life. Um, their advantage is that the money you save under the umbrella of an insurance policy is sheltered from taxes until you withdraw it. The new tax law has left these products relatively unscathed, but you may wish to steer clear anyway. One reason is that the sales fee um, that it, one reason is the sales fee that, however, it's folded into the price of the product. Is like the load on a mutual fund. And there are other problems. Many of these plans provide a, a mediocre rate of return. It's nearly impossible for most families to afford as much whole life as they need when they need life insurance most. The penalty for early withdrawal from a whole life plan for letting the policy lapse after just a few years is enormous. There's no easy way uh, for you to tell a good whole life plan from a bad one, in part because it mixes two things together, insurance and savings. What you really want to know is, assuming a good 
low rate for the insurance portion of your policy, what rate of interest will you be paid on the savings portion? This is hard to find out, end quote. As you may have noticed, he took this patches he took this passage and included it for the most part in later editions of his main book. He, however, cut out the part about it being hard to determine the rate of interest. Um, arguably, he contradicted what he just wrote. If it's so hard to tell what the rate of return is, then how do you know uh, that many of the plans offer a, quote, mediocre rate of return? I think the example from the Texas Instruments book can show that the whole life policy was earning a good bit less than 6%. It admittedly is difficult to determine how much less uh, a return we're getting. Uh, according to a Consumer Reports, agents frequently tell buyers that there is no such thing as a rate of return on a whole life policy. Others say such a policy is a package of protection and savings and it's impossible to separate the two components in order to calculate an accurate rate of return. Actually, it is quite possible to separate the two components mathematically. In quote, the, the book then goes on to talk about the Linton yield. The old textbook that I used in the pilot episode mentioned an article by M.A. Linton called Life Insurance as an Investment. The textbook summarizes the Linton paper while admitting because a life insurance premium purchases a package of decreasing protection and increasing savings, the return on the savings element in a life insurance contract is a complicated concept. It's not easy to calculate the rate of return. So um, Tobias had a point. Regardless, Tobias cut that part out of later writings. I I'll let you decide whether he was wrong. As the textbook explained, instead of buying whole life insurance, he, the customer, could buy decreasing term insurance and invest the difference between Invest the difference between the premium for the whole life insurance and the premium for the decreasing term insurance in a savings account, mutual fund shares, or some other medium. The face value of the decreasing term insurance must be such that added to the increasing investment, it equals the face amount of the whole life policy. Um, if I understand it correctly, the rate of return of the so-called investment portion of the whole life policy is equal to the rate of return in this scenario. Linton, for what it's worth, was able to calculate what the rate of return was for the cash value. I mentioned the net cost index earlier. Consumer Reports observed that, um, quote, a policy with a good cost index is likely to have a good Linton yield. According to them, you should ask the agent about your policy's Linton yield. As promised, I'm going to return to the subject of profligacy and frugality. In later editions of The Only Investment Guide, 
Tobias rebuts an argument that I personally heard an agent say before. Tobias wrote, insurance agents hate the phrase buy term and invest the difference. They counter it by arguing people won't invest the difference, they'll squander it. And that definitely is a risk. But who's to say if you're a squanderer, you're not also one of the great number of policyholders, something like 25%, who will let their expensive whole life policies lapse within the first few years. That's really squandering it. End quote. Frankly, I find it hard to believe that someone uh, would let his policy lapse because he simply couldn't delay gratification. But given the statistics, such people must exist. I, I would like to believe that people simply lost income or lost a job unexpectedly, but I am really just speculating. If someone is prone to squandering money, whole life insurance can't solve that problem. Um, it's a useful product for people who wouldn't save otherwise. On that note, I'll now close with the story of how Tobias ironically endorsed the product that he scorned. In money angles, Tobias listed uh, Burden Mal Malchio uh, in his book, A Random Walk Down Wall Street, as one of the uh, greatest investment books. In the first edition, at least, uh, Malkiel sounded a lot like Tobias. He wrote, The main purpose of insurance is protection, not the accumulation of assets. You'll do that later on Wall Street. Therefore, when you buy life insurance, make sure you are buying pure insurance and not insurance plus a savings plan. The phrase living benefits are a tip-off that you are buying an insurance scheme that is combined with a type of savings plan. The benefit goes to the seller, not the buyer, because these plans pay interest rates on the savings portion that are far below the levels that you could be uh, that could be earned if your money were invested directly in bonds and stocks. Unless you are able to save money only if coerced by slick-talking salesmen, Look for a term insurance plan. End quote. It's no wonder that Tobias had a negative opinion about term uh, about permanent life insurance. Um, he was a few a huge fan of the Malkiel book. Malkiel, however, however, softened his opinion later. Yet the publisher still wanted everyone to um, to know. That Andrew, that Andrew Tobias thought highly of the book. Uh, here's what Malkiel wrote in the 1990 edition of his classic book. For most people, I continue to favor the do-it-yourself approach. Buy term insurance for protection. Invest the difference yourself. Many people, however, will not, regu re will not regularly and consistently invest what they have saved by paying lower insurance premiums. If you are not confident of your ability to set up and, and maintain an investment program, 
but nevertheless want to be sure that there will be a, a certain amount of money available to your family when you die, you do need to buy permanent whole life insurance. End quote. As I write this, as I write this conclusion, the S&P 500 is below where it was two years ago on this date. Where then is the accumulation that was supposed to happen on Wall Street? Uh, I know that it's possible that with so-called dollar cost averaging, the ordinary investor may still be ahead. But it's dubious whether someone is really putting his money to work right now by investing in some index fund. The classic book, How to Buy Stocks, explained dollar cost averaging and how you could make money even if the price of a stock or index is where it began. Um, I, I won't get into that here. The, the high inflation of the 70s turned people away from permanent life insurance. Will, will we be heading for a period of low inflation and positive interest rates? Will the experience of the last couple of years scare people away from the stock market? We were given a promise of accumulation, but the reality is the, rea the reality is that the stock market has not been an inflation hedge. Malkiel warns, you should understand that term insurance premiums escalate sharply when you reach the age of 60 or 70 or higher. Therefore, no protection. Maybe you'll have an index fund worth $100,000 by then. There are no guarantees, though. Another book that Tobias recommended was Benjamin Graham's book, The, uh, the Intelligent Investor. In that book, Graham warned that the future of security prices is never predictable. In other words, don't count on self-insuring. Get some protection. I think everyone can agree on that. <laughs>